This podcast is brought to you by Digital One. Tell your story, connect with your audience, and build your brand with an engaging podcast. Learn more at digone.com. It's the Mount Freelance Show. It'll help your freelance grow. We're cracking jokes and talking to folks who are in the freelance know. Because it's the Mount Freelance Show. Oh, and this is our intro. That's correct. So take a seat and kick up your feet for the Mount Freelance Podcast Show. Oh, that's a cool song. Is that the Mount Freelance theme song, Andrew? It sure, it sure is. I am Andrew Dixon. You are Aaron James. Aaron, why are we doing this podcast? That's a good question because a lot of people said don't do a podcast. There's lots of them out there, but we ignored them. And we are hoping that our unique angle of bringing a experienced, savvy creative freelancer in to our studio slash virtual studio and interviewing them about their experience will be illuminating for you, our freelance audience. Well, and also for us, because we're still freelancers. And one of the cool things is freelance kind of unlocks opportunities of time. And if you do it right, money to do things that you don't get paid for, like the Mount Freelance podcast. So Aaron, I'm looking here at the Mount Freelance website, which I believe you designed and I wrote. And it says that Mount Freelance is actually a course and a, and a, and a member community. Um and taught by us. And apparently we have over two decades combined freelance experience working for some of the biggest brands and agencies in the world. Oh, is this man. true? I think that is true. I mean, if it's on the internet, it's true. And <laughs> let's dig in. So today's exciting, Andrew. We have uh, two errands on the show. Is it going to get confusing? No, because we're, we're just going to talk to him and uh, you can just call me cool guy. Okay. <laughs> cool guy. So uh, tell me a little bit about Aaron Rule. Well, he is a commercial director, first and foremost, um, a passionate photographer, and an accidental uh, cult movie star uh, playing Kip in Napoleon Dynamite. Let's not ask him about that and just see if it comes up. Yeah, that's a good idea. Well, welcome to the interview part of the Mount Freelance podcast. We're thrilled and delighted to have Aaron Rule with us today. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks for having me, guys. Is is that the right order? What do you? What do you, you, you know, we have a lot of uh, you know freelancers that have, there are two things. So, what? How, how do you sort of? How do you rank them? And what's your elevator pitch? I think uh, I, I think it's director first, photographer following. I, it, it kind of varies depending on in what field I'm working more in, but I've kind of put photography on the commercial side of things on the back burner for a while now. So it's definitely director first. And what are some of the more recent projects that, that you're that you're working on that you can tell us about? Well, this is a super weird year to freaking ask me that first <laughs> right. off. I, I mean, I, I, I was thinking about talking to you guys and I was, you know, the thought occurred, I was like, this is I truly, I, this is not an exaggeration. I, I have no time to myself. I, this year has been so crazy where uh, the window of time that I have is 7.30 when the kids go down, 10 o'clock, I'm just ready to freaking peace out because I'm so effing tired. And so, and all I want to do is just like space out during that period of time because of the way the day's gone. So I just kind of unplug and watch a, a film or a, a show um, which leaves, you know, if you do the math, absolutely zero time to do anything creative. Um, I live in Portland for those listening that don't know where I'm at. I live in Portland, but primarily shoot in LA, New York, Vancouver. And so, um, I've never shot here in town. 
but this was the first kind of year where we attempted to bring some jobs to town because I was willing to shoot from home. So like, you know, if I, if I just had to travel from home to set and then back home, that was fine. But when it became a factor of getting on an airplane, living in a hotel, eating at restaurants, and then coming back home, that felt like too much. So uh, we've attempted to bring some jobs to Portland. I've I've continued to bid on things, but in the end, uh, it always ended up going to LA, New York. So, and that is a story that so many of us in the freelance, you know, we're, we're all having bad years, um, and <laughs> and all the limitations of that. Have you um, tried directing remotely? Uh, in the early days, like March, April, uh, was when that was kind of the thing to do. Uh, I haven't seen that since then. Uh, after that, it, it seemed like production companies kind of figured out how to make it work and still follow, uh, you know, whatever state laws were in place. Uh, the problem is, is just sort of uh, how quickly they, they, the laws are, or the rules, I should say, are changing from state to state. So you can start bidding a job and it looks good to shoot in Texas or Utah. By the time the job is greenlit and you're on a plane, things have changed because now they're a hotspot. Um, so it, it's it's a little bit dicey. And, and and I think, you know, there's plenty of directors out there, especially at our production company, and I'm, I'm sure every other production company that uh, are working nonstop and they're on set and doing their thing. It's just not for me. Yeah. I mean, even regardless of the, the pandemic, being a photographer and a director, I mean, these are, these are jobs where you're either working insane hours day after day after day, or you're, you, know, you have a stretch of, of no work or, or just bidding. So may, maybe talk a little bit about, um, personal projects in general. And, and even over the last, you know, I know we're all, we're all dads, so that complicates things when kids are home, but yeah. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the things that you've done lately or historically, um, you know, outside of commercial work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I got into commercials in a roundabout way where I kind of did the standard go to film school, graduate from film school, move to L.A. Uh, L.A., I got a job at a, uh, an internship at a production company at the time doing music videos. And then um, that lasted a couple months. I, I, could, I couldn't stand being on other people's sets and uh, feeling as if I could perhaps do a better job. And, um, and it was it was it was killed me. And so I ended up uh, throwing the little bit of money that we had and borrowing some money from my parents and threw that into a, uh, I did like three spots on spec. And then shortly after that, though, kind of got sidetracked and went and made this movie with a buddy of mine that turned into something really big and then took me down a different route. And then those spec spots were just kind of still floating there. And then I came back to those, uh, honestly, a year and a half later. But I found myself at Sundance with two short films that I wrote. And that is actually what brought me back into the commercial world where a commercial uh, executive producer approached me at Sundance and said, hey, have you ever thought about doing commercials and music videos? And I said, you know what? A while back, I did these spec spots and I kind of dusted those off and showed them. And they're like, wow, okay. And that kind of, that, that started me off. And then so I continued doing commercials, shooting stills. The stills they kind of coincided with what I was doing on the personal side. So I, I, when I started directing commercials, I thought, okay, well, this is going to be my moneymaker. I'm going to keep photography to myself as my own personal thing. And then that lasted for a little bit, but then when you get asked to do it, it's hard to turn down. And so I did it, but then I started to, I felt really conflicted with um, 
that sort of being taken from me in a way where that was all mine. I didn't have to alter my take on things at all. That was purely mine, the photography side. And then what I found was that started to affect the way that my personal work was showing up. Like the lines kind of blurred for me and I just felt less and less inspired to do my own personal work. And then just being completely transparent, I I haven't honestly been inspired to put together a new body of images though that warrants uh, either a show or a book, um, both of which I had previously. Um, So I'm still, you know, all these years into it, I'm still learning how to balance that. I I, I haven't figured it out, but that's sort of... um, that's that's sort of been uh, where I, where I'm at. When when we kind of get to the level that you're at, where you have the, you have commercial projects, you have feature films um, going. What type of a team do you have built around you? Honestly, man, it's always been just me, it, and I I feel like you know that either that probably makes or breaks people and their careers. Um, for me, it's always worked out. So to, to answer the question, I really don't have a team. I have a really hard time not having complete control on what I'm doing. I, I don't know how to parse out creative assignments that have my name on it. I can't really go and tell somebody, go go do it the way that I would do it or go find some inspiration that's going to inspire me. It just doesn't work that way. It's like, uh, f- for me anyway, I, I'm sure it works that way for others and I, you know, I'm envious, but... You know, I, I think everybody operates differently. I think other people would be far more open to allowing, you know, here's here's a funny project or here's a more dramatic project and feeling okay about coming into it, even if they weren't 100% into it or finding a, a way into that project. I just never had that experience. It just, it wasn't a, a relationship that both were, you know, I was benefiting from, nor were they, because I kept just saying, no, thanks, no, thanks, that's not right. That's, I, I don't know how to put my voice into that. Um, and so it just didn't work out. Um, so to answer your question about the team, uh, you are speaking to team rule. <laughs> <laughs> are you the rare director that actually makes your own treatments? Listen, I write and I source images, but I will no way lie in saying that I don't have help adding to the images and adding or or making my words more clear. Uh, I, I have a way of writing that's, you know, I kind of just throw it out, but it's not the easiest to read. And so I get help cleaning that up. But um, but yeah, I, 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 I make sure that my treatments look like me. Yeah, that when I when I first realized, I actually have a friend who, basically, he is a high end, you know, a list director, treatment writer, <laughs> designer, and it kind of like blew my mind that you know that you would basically spend two days trying to say, here's what this director's vision is based on a one hour call, and and so yeah, I really appreciate that you're, uh, you know, you're putting the you're putting the time in. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I, I have help, no doubt, but uh, what. Ghostwriters are great for for real broad strokes, you know. I remember one of my first uh, TV commercial shoots. Um, you know, had had this great connection with the director. You know, just it was a great creative process. And then I never saw the director again after the shoot day. And I, that always blew me away that that the director wasn't really a part of the editorial process. And it, you know, everyone works a little differently. But it, how how do you feel about that? I hate that. I I I wish I lived in the UK for this reason. You know, I I the best work that I've I've I do is when I'm invited to the edit session. It's 
it, it just feels as if, um, you know, agencies and clients get cheated out of not having that direction from start to finish, you know? And agency creatives are, are more than competent to put things together. I mean, beautiful edits day in, day out. I mean, we see the stuff all over the place. But, you know, if you're hiring someone to at least add a little bit of a thumbprint to a project that you guys have slaved over for months and months, you know, it, it only makes sense to have them honestly be responsible for it all the way through post. I, I found on, on certain projects that knowing that you're not in the edit, it, it's almost as if I'll give them enough pieces where this is all going to work out together. That like it's, it's, this is all going to be completely fine, but it doesn't really carry that one voice that started with the direction, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, what, one of the things that I think is um, remarkable about you is you have such a uh, aesthetic that's you know sort of unique to you. I mean, you really do. You are uh, you know a filmmaker and, and photographer that has a vision. And um, yeah, talk a little bit about how kind of how you develop that, and then also how you've protected it. You even mentioned you know sort of not doing commercial photography anymore because I'm <laughs> guessing you know people kind of wanted to take your unique vision and all of a sudden turn it into a tide you know, print ad. Yeah. I, I, that's, that's a tricky one to speak to because again, being completely honest, the beginning of my career as a commercial director was so tightly associated with the film I had come from, which was Napoleon Dynamite. They assumed that I was a comedy guy because I was in a comedy film. When in reality, I just I just come out of film school and was helping a buddy out who asked me to play this role. But you know, when you're getting your your break, you go with how it's going. You know, when you're starting off, you get a lot of work that's subpar, and so my aesthetic that kind of came from that was something that was uh, very art directed. My background has always been something that's very visually driven. So, you know, my personal preferences things are things that are dramatically driven. That's not to say that my, my visual world that I live in and prefer is definitely one that's very put together from colors to angles to whatever it may be. And that's, and I, even in my day-to-day life, it's, I, I'm, that's just my nature. Where that came from, I, I don't entirely know. I can say that I grew up in a very small town, kind of country style. I grew up around a lot of stuff that never felt like it was contemporary. It always felt like it was a couple decades old. Um, and I definitely think that factored into uh, the worlds that I would kind of end up creating that kind of followed me into commercials. But I, I like things that look good. But at that in the beginning stage, it was all a bit uh, contrived. And I definitely, you know, the past however many years have, have kind of moved from that in part because I've gotten scripts that are better written. And so it's allowed me to kind of s- still have a, a, a visual aesthetic that, is pleasing, but definitely not one that carries a certain artifice that I think in the beginning of my career did. That's a, a fascinating answer as to why you did so early in your career. Bad scripts. <laughs> These aren't the doors you're looking for. Well, I also hear small, small towns in there. And as someone from a small town and, and you really put it great, just like, Hey, nothing here is new. Um, yeah. And so there is an aesthetic that's like current, but, it's like kind of it's, but it's not retro because it's current. But it just feels like it's, it's, it's got some dust. Yeah, that that was the thing. I, I that word was always being used, like, oh, your look is so retro. And to me, it was like this. 
this is not retro. This is the, this is how I grew up. This is this is still in when I go back home. This is what the shelf looks like. And to this day, you know, the biggest thing in my town is is Big Hats Rodeo Day. I mean, there's a cowboy element to it. There's a a farm worker element to it because it's in the San Joaquin Valley, which is the you know, uh, agricultural capital of the world. It was just like a mashup of a lot of different things, but none of them were ever considered cutting edge in terms of art design, nothing like that. It's possible to freelance without coffee, but we don't recommend it. What we do recommend is getting a bag of Stumptown coffee delivered to your door every two weeks. They have a host of varietals to choose from. And the beans aren't ground, so the fresh taste doesn't get lost in the mail. I would hate for that to happen. And because Aaron knows someone who knows someone who knows someone, you can get 50% off your first subscription order with the code MTFREELANCE. That's Mount Freelance. Andrew, is that all one word, all caps? It's all caps. So head on over to stumptowncoffee.com and get caffeinated in style. You know, we are consuming media so differently now than 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 when you had your success with with a film, um, and then now, like even commercials. Like, how how are you personally kind of adapting to these changes? Whether it's streaming, whether it's um, you know maybe more episodic opportunities, that type of thing. Yeah, that that's a good question. But I I think that um, I'm so overtaken with the kind of tunnel vision of getting my first feature made, that that would be my, you know, um, most pressing project that I have the need to kind of get done and make. Um, I've truly not considered other mediums, whether it's episodic or anything else. Not that I wouldn't entertain them. I think there's a lot of great things that are obviously happening, but, um, for me, my, my, my very small creative mind goes from, you know, commercial work that comes in uh, and then in the free moments, it pivots to my new script. Uh, there's really nothing in between for me. And, and I just feel as if the reason for that for me personally is I just feel there's a clock ticking for me and it's, it's a self-imposed clock. When I was a teenager, Robert Rodriguez did El Mariachi. And I remember as a teenager watching this film and he made, you know, made El Mariachi for $7,000, $8,000 by age 21. And so for me as a 16 year old kid, 21 was five years away and seemed like an eternity away. And then by the time I hit 21 and I didn't have a feature in hand or ready to be made, when I turned 22, I felt like I was a complete failure, you know? I really did. And so here I am decades later and I still feel that clock that's just like, oh, come on, man, don't, don't, don't drop this. So for me, it's a very one-track mind, and and I think you know I, I I've seen a certain difference, and and I I'd, I'd be interested in hearing your guys' take on this too with different directors that you've worked with. I feel like it's pretty easy to suss out commercial directors who came into c- the commercial world with the end goal of being a commercial director. So as as a kid or as a college kid, whatever it was, they their end goal was I'm going to direct commercials. That's my that's my career versus directors who didn't necessarily intend to direct commercials. It was always features and then found themselves directing commercials. Have, what, have you guys noticed that? Do you guys see it? Do you, can you tell the difference? 
I definitely can. I think um, I think uh, one of the directors I, I had the pleasure of working with was Phil Morrison. And talk about a guy who um, brought cinematic vision to commercials. Um, you know, it was like, and and personality and, and, and kind of developing characters and this, this, this little micro, um, amount of time compared to the features that he's done. Um, and to me, uh, I mean, I'm always trying to learn, you know, uh, anytime I, I'm around people that, that can do that type of thing. So I, I was, you know, we got to work together for almost a month and I think I learned more about filmmaking in that month and, and, and really about how to communicate and, and draw performances out of people. It was fascinating. And so, you know, I think that one sticks out for me. I, I do. It makes me think of, uh, friends in advertising who, you know, a lot of, a lot of creatives will want to make that jump. And I've had a couple, you know, younger creatives say, you know, I want to, I want to make a feature film. So I'm going to start I'm going to become a commercial director and then I'm going to make a few. And I say, no, don't. It's, it's such a slippery slope, right? Because the money's insane. I mean, I can remember an editor who worked on a Fincher movie who literally had to sell his house and move to a smaller house to afford to work on a feature for David Fincher versus like continuing to, to, to cut commercials. Um, but yeah, no, and I also, I, I came up similarly. I went to film school and, and, you know, the, you know, clerks and, and all, you know, that whole thing. And so I actually, I did, I made a, like a $25,000 feature oh, yeah? in my early twenties. It's, it's not very watchable, but I have to say <laughs> I did it. And in oh. some ways it, it took a little bit of the hunger away. Cause that was like, I, I had that same feeling. Like I have to make a feature film before I die. And then I did, it wasn't again, not very good, but I did it. You can, yeah. you can find it. It's, it's 72 minutes, just long enough to count. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, man. That's huge. That, that, I really think that is something. It's, I'll tell you what, like just trying to get these two features made, it is um, truly a near miracle when a feature is made. Unless you really have gone through the motions and the process, I think it's easy to misunderstand the difficulty of getting a feature made. But, you know, there's also something to be said for the craft that comes with a well-made film. And and I don't mean to say that you need like millions of dollars necessarily, but there is, you know, it sounds awful, but there's a certain respect that's given to the craft that can only really come when you have time. And the only way you have time is if you have money. And even when you have money, you don't have much time. So it, it's it's having all of those things aligned to make something that's worthwhile is such a feat. Obviously, there's certain DPs that you, that you love to work with. What separates it like a, a good, a great DP from like a good one or an average one in your mind? So one of the things for me with DPs is there's there's got to be a personality click. You know, there's got to be some sort of overlap with the way that we operate just on a human level. I, I need somebody that I can... Um, relate to in some way. So it's so somebody that's mellow and then someone that takes it seriously, you know, the very least we can do is show up and put our all into it. I mean, you get paid too much to not, to, to do otherwise. So for me, there's that. And then what I really like are DPs who 
have a different take than what I came in with. So having DPs say, you know what, I, changing the angle or changing the, the the way that I had intended for the 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 lighting cues to be, so so that's a big deal to me. But um, but yeah, like I, you know, all directors have their kind of handful of DPs that they continue to go back to. And I, I have mine and, and they all kind of share those qualities where they surprise me with their take. I love spending time with them and they're good people and, and they're extremely talented. I won't take that from them. They're all really extremely talented people. Any advice for someone who's considering accidentally becoming a cult movie star? <laughs> oh man. The, the advice that I, here's, here's, something that's entirely honest. I struggled so much uh, the first handful of years after that movie came out and my association with it. And if, if I could give myself some advice back at that time, you know, um, I wish that I wouldn't have let it affect me the way I did. And the way that it affected me is that I was almost bitter towards my with my association to that film because you got to remember that I was... I was attempting to be a director. Like that was my career path. And then I kind of was known as an actor. And so when all of a sudden you're known as something other than what you have spent your short life intending to do, um, it really throws you. And I was always constantly trying to fight against this, you know, actor Aaron Rule tries his hand at directing sort of headline that was always sort of, the conversation starter, and um, and it just killed me. And so I think that carried over into into that film, how big it was, and I just kind of wanted to distance myself from it. But now it's an entirely different thing, and I wish I could go back to that version of Aaron and just say, "Man, lighten up, just just lighten up. It's all going to work out." And yeah, Andrew, yeah, um, do you need to spice things up? In the kitchen? Not anymore, because I have several bottles of Bobby's Boat Sauce. Oh, Bobby's Boat Sauce. Isn't that the sauce that's like ketchup, sriracha, fish sauce, and they all got together, started a full rock band in your mouth? Yes! Okay, well, it does come in hot or classic, and it goes great on eggs, avocado toast, pad thai, or anything else that you're going to make for your next meal. The cool thing is, if you use the code MOUNTFREE, M-T-FREE, all one word, all cap, you're going to get 15% off your order, which is pretty cool. So go to bobbysboatsauce.com and use that code. As freelancers, you know, kind of getting into the career, whether it's whether it's photography, design, even account side, you know, strategy, whatever these things are, you know, where everyone kind of is kind of working towards a, a little bit of fame, you know, enough uh, I mean, enough where your career starts to go a little smoother. You start, you know, getting the calls, you, that type of thing. And and you had something entirely opposite where you, you had the fame for something you didn't really want the fame for. And now it almost inhibited you from really developing the career that you wanted. Yeah, it was so, it was so strange. And there was, there was just a, a an avalanche of sort of baggage, emotional baggage that came with it. Because consider this, you know, I'd recently moved to LA and then we bounced and, and made the film, came back. And from the time that we made the film, we made the film in the summertime. And then 
went to Sundance in January. So within six, five months from making it to being at Sundance and it becoming what it, and being sold to, you know, a major studio. So it's such a short amount of time. And, and then I found myself with, you know, on the acting side of things with same deal, you know, managers and agents and that sort of deal. Living in LA, which is a city that's full of aspirations, most of which are never met, right? And here I was being sent these big studio films to be an actor in um, and having zero interest in it, yet thousands of people would kill for this opportunity. And here I was just like with no interest in it. And so I felt a bunch of guilt um, for for that, which is also why I kind of pushed away from that film and everything else. It's like, it, it was just a weird time for me, to be honest. It was really strange, but I, I did come away with some some fun uh some fun experiences with I was <laughs> because I would be sent these scripts and um because I had I could care less it would be I wasn't willing to audition like put myself on tape f- f- to audition but I'd be willing to meet with the director you know <laughs> and you know in looking back on it it's so ridiculous because I was I still am like a nobody and to make those demands of like hey if you're in- if you're interested in me uh you got to sit down with me but I'm not going to I'm not going to audition I'm not going to read these lines and it it made for some really interesting opportunities. Like uh, I I can't believe in retrospect the doors that it got me into. Like this, the people that said yes to it. But one of the craziest was uh, sitting on a couch next to Michael Bay. <laughs> <laughs> and that dude, he uh, you know bless him. He he actually said okay. And uh, it was probably just more out of his own for his own entertainment, but. Uh, it was for the uh, launch of the Transformers series that he was doing, and it was just the most bizarre situation. And I was loving every minute of it because you got to, like I said, I had zero interest in this actually working. I was there for the experience and just gone, man. Okay, remember all this because this is so crazy. And uh, just sitting on a couch with that guy and uh, just kind of shooting the crap with him. And after about a half an hour, he finally said, um, you know, I don't, uh, I don't mean to, uh, impose this on you, but would you mind maybe reading this scene? (laughs) And, and again, looking back on it, it's like, oh, of of course he'd ask that. But for me to be so blase about like, eh, I don't know. Uh, it's just pretty great. It's pretty great. (laughs) So you have had more time this year as a lot of us have to kind of uh, maybe reflect and, and hunker down a little bit less, less of the work that we're used to getting. What do you do to kind of stay inspired, you know, as you're working on your feature and, and not on as many commercial projects, where do you get that inspiration or that creative creativity when you're in a rut? This year, I I've had less time to myself than any other point in my life. Like I mentioned, I've got four little kids. Uh, my youngest just started kindergarten, so they're all in front of a computer in all different grades. They're, they're, aside from my fifth grader, who's my oldest, she's the only one that can kind of do it on her own. The rest need you know, either myself or my wife sitting next to them at some point or all like during throughout the day. But it's something that I am addressing, actually, because uh, I was just talking to my wife about this, where this is the first year where... Um, I've not really done something creatively worthwhile by my terms. 
and it it's pretty soul crushing it's it's like it just it there's something, and I, I, I've been feeling it, but I didn't recognize it, that that was sort of the, the catalyst for the feeling that I was having. And it's been going on for, for months now, but, um, but I, I think that's the reason behind it. And so I, I'm going to adjust that in the beginning of this next year, remove myself from the house, knowing that that's the only way that I'll be able to, um, you know, get that little selfish bit of time creatively produce something. Um, so that's the goal, but how I find inspiration is the same way I always have throughout my life is, you know, in the moments that I do have during the day, it's, it's music, it's film, it's books. Um, I, I do read every night before I go to bed as well. So it's always that sort of thing, but I'm telling you this year, time-wise, I I've never been busier. It's just not in a way that's making me any, you know, American dollars, but I'm hoping that it pays off in, uh, you know, in, in what comes from this and of our, as far as our family dynamic, it's, if I could do anything, it would just be hanging with them and make, making them laugh, uh, in whatever way I could, but, um, 2020. Oh yeah. I can relate. I've got friends who are sending me plays they've written and novels they've written. I've got one friend who wrote a play and a (laughs) novel and, and, you know, yeah, you're like, what am I doing? I'm like, oh yeah, right. I'm in, I'm in seventh grade. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just, I'm like a short order cook and dishwasher. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's it's funny. In the early days of this, I had some of my my single friends. Um, some of the first notes I got from them were like, man, are you going to finish that script right away? I mean, you're going to have so much time now, right? And you know, I'm just like, guys, you are, you don't, you are so clueless. You're, you're clearly single without children. You have zero idea of what this now means for my life. <laughs> well, and then they get a dog and they tell you how, how much work it is. Oh man. So, yeah. No, yeah. it's single friends. It's okay. We, we understand. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're a little jealous. <laughs> Absolutely. Aaron Rolf, thank you so much for coming on and sharing these great stories about your, your journey uh, as, a, as a filmmaker and uh, excited to see what uh, 2021 uh, brings from you creatively. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right. We have the exciting part of the show where uh, we get some questions from some of the great folks that listen to this podcast. I can't wait. Hi, my name is Sarah Reimer, and I'm a full-time freelance graphic designer and marketer based in Ridgedale, Missouri. And my question is, what methods do you use to obtain consistent freelance work? Sarah, that that is that's like the question. It's the main one. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the the easiest the easiest thing to do um, is to keep your current clients happy. And and so, you know, the 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 less time you're looking for work and the more time you're working, obviously that's that's freelance nirvana. So, it's so much about over-delivering to your existing clients, but then m- maybe Maybe you can offer something that they don't know that you have to offer, right? So, so maybe you know you can uh, realize, hey, you know, they, I'm, I'm working on their website, but their social needs some some help, and and I can help with that, or or better yet, I know someone who can help with that. Yeah, and I think uh, building out kind of these project SWAT teams is actually a great way to build your network because. 
um, let's say they need motion design and they need uh, some film editing or, or something like that. That may not be what you do, but you could bring in the right person and all of a sudden there's kind of some synergy on that. And now all of a sudden you're kind of, you're really kind of spidering your network out that way. And I, I think that's actually um, a, kind of a, a limitation that we always just kind of think about what we do and that's all the all the jobs that we can take are just exactly what we do. And I think that's kind of a, a limitation that we don't have to have because you, your network that you're building is not only within your clients, it's also within other freelancers. And that's a big reason Mount Freelance exists is like we're, uh, you know, we're kind of putting all of us together and kind of collectively finding and and staffing and kind of, you know, moving uh, through different jobs. And I think that's actually a, a kind of a fresh way to look at it. And then, you know, as far as getting new clients or maybe someone who's just starting out and doesn't have clients, I think it's really important to remember we can be proactive. I think often as freelancers, we just, we field offers and we wait for our, our email, you know, inbox to fill up. But there's there's no reason you can't put a list of the 10 clients that you dream about working with and then approach them, <laughs> you know, yeah. do your homework. You know, if you can find the, you know, find people who who might hire you on LinkedIn or you might collaborate with there. And, you know, it's it's what ad agencies do, you know, and as freelancers, we can and should be just as proactive and, and go after the work and the and the clients we want. Yeah. The Mount Freelance Podcast is handcrafted by the producers, mixers, and sound designers of Digital One, Portland, Oregon. Executive producer, Eric Stolberg. Post-producer, Kelsey Woods. Assistant engineer, Tristan Schmunk, who also created the theme song and incidental music. To learn more about Aaron, Andrew, and Mount Freelance, visit mtfreelance.com. Thanks for listening, and may your day rate be high and your vacations long. Digital One.